Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Dr. R.A. Judy, professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, discusses his research spanning world literature, critical and literary theory, as well as literary criticism. He also gives a preview of his lecture topic for the upcoming Mary Stevens Reckford Lecture in European Studies. The lecture has been rescheduled to Monday, April 13th. Tickets are available at iah.unc.edu. Um, to get started, uh, you are a professor of critical and cultural studies in the Department of English at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, we kind of briefly talked before we started the podcast interview, but you have this this really interesting background of where you studied in your undergraduate and graduate level. And I just want to know what initially sparked your interest to start working in your field. Of course, my 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 formation is in the field of uh, comparative literature. Uh, and uh, before uh, I did my doctoral work in comparative literature, I did an undergraduate degree in uh, philosophy. Uh, specifically Islamic philosophy. And that was after four years of study at Al-Azhar, completing that degree at the University of Minnesota in uh, 1981-82. It's been that long ago. So so that's the field. And, and when you ask me what sparked my interest in that field, really it, it, it goes back to 1972, 1973, uh, when I was uh, um, graduating high school and uh, was at that time uh, an activist uh, in my hometown of uh, Minneapolis and was uh, an activist engaged um, in a a certain kind of radical politics. And uh, that radical politics had to do with uh, the effort of one of my childhood friends to try and create a a branch of the Black Panther Party in the Twin Cities, Uh, an effort that did not come to fruition. he, he died under unfortunate circumstances, but part of the initiative was establishing a sort of makeshift uh, liberty school. And um, um, I was given the role uh, to provide instruction for that. And uh, that, that morphed uh, in the period from, from 1971 until 73, uh, after my friend Dewell's death, uh, into uh, a series of classes uh, held at uh, a makeshift community center and then a series of classes in uh, um, 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 black poetry uh, held at uh, the African-American Cultural Center in South Minneapolis that was accredited by the, the school board. Where I'm going with all of this is that in the course of that work, uh, much of my studies was focused on the work of Franz Fanon. Uh, and uh, there were also uh, family uh, issues about Islam because my, my, my maternal great uh, uh, great grandfather he came from uh, the Spanish Sahara and and the convergence of those factors the family story and Fanon's work uh, uh, really prompted me to and it sounds preposterous but this is this is how I thought about it and this is what I wrote in my journal to, to think that there was a need to try to imagine uh, um, a different uh, kind of a political and social order based upon a different metaphysics, if you will. Uh, specifically, Fanon talked about the two camps of the Islamic world and 
the West. And uh, um, at that point, I decided I wanted to go into international law because I was convinced that the arena uh, in which uh, such issues as social justice and human rights was going to be waged uh, in international law. This is again 1972, 1973. Mm. And at that point then I decided that I wanted to set off on a, a program of becoming uh, uh, as thoroughly versed in both those civilizations, that is to say the Islamic and the West. I'm a Muslim. And so that set me on, on, on a very particular political course. I became involved with the Islamic Party of North America on my way to study at the Lazar University with the, the initial intention of becoming a, a, a Muslim alim, a scholar, a learned man. Uh, specifically in the area of, of, of Islamic thought. Initially, I wanted to focus on theological thought, but in the course of my work at Al-Azhar, where I studied at the School of Arabic Language and Literature, uh, I became interested in philosophy. And that interest of philosophy followed through upon my return back to the States, and, and that really was the spark I wanted to, in looking at philosophy, explore different conceptualizations of the human. I was interested in two things. Uh, theories of knowledge, epistemology, and the relationship and difference between uh, theories of knowledge or epistemology that developed historically in the Arabic-speaking world and uh, modern epistemology. So I began doing comparative work between a man named Al-Ghazali and René Descartes. But then I was also interested in issues of interpretation or, or hermeneutics, which involved an, an, an issue or an interest in language. And, and uh, it was the combination of those two things that took me into comparative literature because uh, at the time I got my undergraduate degree, um, continental philosophy was pretty much falling out of favor in most of philosophy departments in this country. And mm -hmm. the kind of work I wanted to do, uh, even though I got my degree in philosophy from the philosophy department in the University of Minnesota, was being done in comparative literature then under the rubric of theory. I see. So that's what brought me into comparative literature and then continuing my interest in epistemology and uh, hermeneutics, I, I studied intensely uh, the field of, of semiotics, uh, the study of systems of signification regardless of the medium, uh, uh, under the rubric of, of theory. And, and uh, the fruit of that was um, my uh, PhD project, which became my first book, Disforming the American Canon which was uh, first a translation of uh, a slave narrative that had been written in Arabic by, by a man from Sapelo Island. Ben Ali was what it was called. And then uh, an interrogation of the epistemological and hermeneutic issues involved uh, in the text he wrote. And, and the point being there that, that here was an example of a, a text produced by an African who had been enslaved at the turn of the 19th century, being in the 19th century, that in its in its in its form as well as in its content, defied the the parameters of Western understanding, and presented an alternative hermeneutics and epistemology. So you see, mm -hmm. it, it goes full circle, mm -hmm. and that that has been that remains the focus of my work, which is to say, looking at uh, different forms of sometimes popular, sometimes more esoteric uh, expression uh, um, uh, among African diaspora people, as they're called, but also uh, in, in, in Arabic, uh, from philosophical text to musical form in dance, mm. uh, which dance and music play a major role in my forthcoming book, Sentient Flesh. And in looking at them, being able to, to really excavate in them uh, practices of living attended by 
theorizations of them, theories of knowledge that 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 are doing something, as Fanon would put it, else from the Western ontological project. You kind of touched on this at the tail end of that question, but I, I would like to know how would you describe your current research interest? You know, I think that you said that you know this is still surrounding your work, kind of your history up until this point is still around some of the same key aspects. Um, but what are you currently working on? And, and do you think that you are addressing what you wrote in that journal of, of what you would like to do? do you, how do you see that all tying together? Yes, I'm addressing it through an avenue that uh, I wouldn't have anticipated when I was all of, what, 17. Yeah. There are, there are uh, a number of projects, but, but uh, I'll, I'll spell out uh, two or three of them that I have a very particular uh, focus. I've been working for some time uh, in Tunisia and with Tunisians, uh, going uh, as far back as uh, um, 1998, uh, when I was a Fulbrighter in Tunisia. My relationship with Tunisia goes back to 1988, so 10 years before that. And uh, uh, that ongoing relationship has entailed uh, um, um, a certain attention to and involvement with the political transformations that are going on uh, in Tunisia since 2010. And, of course, my, my argument is that those, those transformations have been going on for quite some time, traceable back to some of the, the reforms that Bourguiba put in place beginning in 1956. But the focus of that work that I'm doing now and it has, really, two principal foci. The first is, uh, and, and that's laid out in the introduction to the Tunisia dossier that uh, the journal I'm on, Boundary 2, published in, in uh, 2012. We began working on it during the revolution. As soon as the revolution began, I contacted my, my friends and colleagues in Tunisia who were actually involved in the revolution and said, I think it's important that we record you're thinking about why you're doing what you're doing before it gets subsumed in a general narrative and lost. So we managed to solicit seven pieces by people who were, who were at, the, at the barricades, as it were, in which they talked about what they thought they were doing. And they talked about it in terms of social transformation. And they talked about it in terms of economic transformation. And they talked about it in terms of a particular kind of social movement that entailed a different notion of polity, of politics, right? And that had a lot to do with the structure of the general union, et cetera, et cetera. So that work, which came out in 2012, and my introduction reflects the interest that I'm looking at right now. And what is that? That, in fact, what's happened in what we call Thawr al-Arabiya, the Arab revolutions, as opposed to the Arab Spring, problematic aspects of that latter designation, indeed speaks to uh, the event of what I called in the introduction uh, an emergent intelligence from among the population. And so I'm interested in the ways in which political activity gets organized outside of traditional political lines of party structure uh, and gets organized in kind of diffuse structures from unions to the failed effort two years ago at a free university in Tunisia. I, I go back uh, pretty regularly. And there's all of this lively effort as my friend Mohamed Salomri put it, or Muldi Raisumi, who's been writing extensively on this, has put it, to invent civil society from the ground up in a different kind of civil society. As one of the important revolutionaries, Ahmed Jideh, uh, uh, said uh, to me in 2011, in the middle of it, the, the apex of the events in Tunisia, 
it, it, what was important was to try to arrive at some notion of a popular sovereignty predicated upon perpetual anarchy, mm. meaning specifically not crystallizing into political party structures, but being able to sustain ongoing political activism, uh, regardless of, of state structures. So there's a kind of dynamic tension between the population uh, that isn't reduced to party configurations, right, but in terms of multiple sites. And we see that when we pay attention to Tunisia in the continuing rolling strikes. There's always this kind of anarchic tension. So I'm interested in understanding uh, the, the kind of theorization of power that's taking place right now in Tunisia and, and how the Tunisians are practicing and theorizing that power. You know what's what's at stake in 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 the most recent elections. What's at stake in the current crises in politics, and what's at stake on the ground. Mm -hmm. So that involves research I'm doing and going back to Tunisia and 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 interacting with Tunisians and trying to formulate. I've been involved in a project that 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 we call Lincani uh, al-Jadida, the new humanism, uh, which is taking a page from Fanon's Wretched of the Earth and looking at it in terms of all different kinds of contexts in Tunisia, from dealing with trade unions to dealing with to dealing with women's workers' collectives and discussing the kind of politics they're doing to sort of create uh, uh, a record of the kind of intelligence that's emerging as it's emerging. And that also has led me to, to Algeria, appropriately for Fanon, where I was two years ago, uh, again, trying to deal with some of those who've become activists in the street dynamics now. So there's a kind of phenomenon that's occurring. Uh, uh, not just in those two countries, we see aspects of it in other countries in the region, Sudan, for instance. Uh, uh, but, and that phenomenon is where a particular set of ideas associated with, with a, a, a radical republicanism, and I'm referring to the revolutions of the 18th century, such notions as, as revolutionary transformation, such no, notions as indeed popular sovereignty, as they're waning in the West, mm. are, are building up a certain momentum in those countries. And they're not emulating the history of the Western expression of liberalism or revolutionary consciousness, but they're generating something else. That's one of the things I'm going to study, right? And, and uh, the publication of it is coming out in forms of, of collections of essays and conversations uh, uh, with Tunisians, and I'm hoping to do one with uh, Algerians in the near future. The other aspect of my interest uh, in that part of the world uh, has, to, uh, has to do with the, uh, the, the question of, 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 of blackness. Uh, and uh, blackness understood, in, in, as I talk about it in, in my uh, uh, forthcoming book, Sentient Flesh, as a, a particular set of practices and ways of thinking about the human that uh, uh, really depart from uh, the history of, of Western philosophical tradition and ontology, that they're doing something else. And, and where that comes to play in a place like Tunisia, well, 16% of the Tunisian population is black. 16. 16. One, six, 16%. That's, that's the official conservative estimate. We don't have co official conservative estimates in Algeria about that yet, but it has a substantial black population as well. And we're talking about uh, autochthonous or indigenous black populations, right? Many of them are of Berber descent, et cetera, et cetera, but they phenomenal, phenotypically present as black. And, and there even are, are, are racist terms that are in use that, that mark that. And so I'm very interested in, in, in the ways in which 
they instantiate a conception of blackness. And part of the interest in that is to really open up the question of blackness so it's not so centered on the North American experience, and also not just centered on the North Atlantic experience, uh, but rather uh, to, to pose it as a general problem of or possibility of, of thinking, as I said, the human differently. And that, that involves then sort of a series of careful monographs that involve going into the field and interacting with these people. In Tunisia, there's been uh, an upsurge of, of black pride that, that looks at the American example, for, for instance, that isn't at all sparked by the American example, although there, this has always been a story there. That, 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 that story about uh, uh, American black internationalism from the 60s, but rather is sparked by the revolution that I was describing a minute ago, where, where the ideals emerging incline the, the, the blacks to say, wait a minute, what about our rights? Let's, let's make the project of reimagining a different kind of human really inclusive. And the same thing has been happening in Algeria two years ago. There's a big scandal about the fact that the Algerians had selected a black woman as Miss Algeria. Wow. Uh, and that's been tied up as well in Algeria with a kind of a revival of Fanon among the young people, the people in the streets, that is quite distinct from the way the state is, has uh, presented Fanon. So that's the second focus. So that, that focus on blackness, it's still tying into the old project, you see, is part of wanting to, to, to explore uh, as best I can in, in careful material terms, emerging theories of knowledge, emerging epistemologies, and very frankly, uh, to try to explore traditions of practicing life, traditions of thinking about what it is to be human that simply are, have nothing to do with Western ontology. And, and for me, the a key there in understanding these things and trying to give it a coherent expression uh, is to uh, uh, pay attention to the ways in which practices of signification whether it is written text, whether it's structures of language, people speaking, whether it is graffiti, whether it is film, uh, um, um, that are sustained and transmitted across time, uh, 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 give us some sense of uh, certain ways of thinking. And, and there I take a page from, from uh, Gamatis de Vico's uh, New Science, uh, and, and uh, that has to do with the axiom that, that, that uh, human beings only know what they know. I'm paraphrasing, right? And of course, what they know is found in their linguistic expression, in, in their poetry, as he puts it. So that's the project with regards to Tunisia. And then it, 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 it speaks to the project with regards to the question of blackness, what I call black study. And, and that's, that's about, and here I'm you know, in conversation with uh, scholars like uh, Fred Moten, Naom Chandler, uh, Denise de Silva. Uh, um, but what I mean by black study in that regard then is whether or not there is indeed a, a, a tradition of theorization and of being human. And by being human, I mean in concrete practices. Songs, what we used to call institutions of civil society, to give a concrete things like, you know, Masonic lodges, Elks clubs, churches, that expressly uh, articulate a distinctive attitude to life across the full gambit of life. And that attitude is what I call, uh, um, uh, in one breath, uh, black poesis, or what I actually call it is poesis in black, uh, 
Was that a publication that came out recently? Well, that's that's part that's of part of the book called Sentient Flesh, and its subtitle is Poesies in Black. Uh, but but when I say Poesies in Black, I, I, I say that Poesies in Black is an iteration of, uh, let's say, a broader uh, concept, which I call parasemiosis. And what I mean by that is precisely one of the things that these different populations that I'm looking at, whether it's in Tunisia or Algeria or whether it's in Haiti or in New York or in Minneapolis, to talk to places I'm looking at this, they have in common that they 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 formulate, they articulate, they actually they, they enact a way of being human that is not a, a, a monolingual and is not um, um, a single line, but in fact a way of being human that is at the, the confluence of multiple lines. And each of those lines are systems of signification, so we can imagine them as languages, right? And, and what, what one is, is in that mixture. What one is, is in the flow. So, for example, uh, you could be uh, someone who's from San Luis de San de Cuba, like my, my, my great-grandfather, who has both uh, Arabic, because his father was from the Spanish era, and Spanish, and Haitian Creole, as languages that are part, was a, that was part of of, of, of Eduardo's formation, right? Uh, and then when he moves to uh, the U.S., English becomes a part of it because he moves after the revolution of, of, of 1895, and then he served in the U.S. military when the military fought the Spanish-American War in 1998. All of those things come together to articulate a sense of being in which there's no need to cancel any of them out and no need to synthesize them into a singular identity, right? And, and, and that way of being in the confluence of all these things is what I call parasemiosis. We'd have talked about it in the old days of the blues as being at the crossroads. But what, what I want to emphasize is that each of those populations I'm looking at have a, have a distinctive, clear sense of that way of being, right? It's not unusual, it's not extraordinary, it's just a way of being. And this gets studied in different kinds of ways in looking at Africa. People talked about it in terms of divided uh, uh, persona or divided individuals. Uh, uh, but it, it speaks to a different way of understanding what it is to be, not just as an individual, but to be an individual in common with others across all of these, these multiplicities. Right? I mean, just to, to, to try to give it some sort of coherent sense, we think of a simple thing. There's a joke I like to tell my students. What do we call someone who speaks many languages? That part they never know. African. I see. Right? Because uh, if you go to the continent, it's, it's pretty normal, as in commonplace, for people to have four or five languages. Right? And, and that's significant, to be in four or five languages at once. It is. Right? And it plays out in the social dynamics on the ground as well. This, of course, means thinking differently about Africa than sort of necessarily divided tribal structures. What do we call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do we call someone who speaks one language? This is the mean part of the joke. Yes, that's right. You know the answer. Everybody knows the answer, which is? America. There you go. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but my point is, in, in the African example, right, that that's I'm trying to give a sort of concrete sense of what I mean by parasemiosis. And to take seriously 
the ways of thinking that attend to that. So if, in fact, uh, having a conversation with uh, uh, a Babalao, a, a Yoruba uh, a practitioner, uh, by, by chance, uh, he's teaching in Santa Barbara from a long line of, of Babalaos, of, of, uh, you can't call them priests. Uh, um, um, and I'm describing the book that I just described to you. He says, but that's exactly what the Ifa is. Mm. Right? Now, you stop a minute. No leap for him. Right? It's, oh, so you finally get it. Now, for me, that becomes significant. All right, let's tend to the fact that there is a discourse and a transmitted tradition that talks about the cosmology, right? In, in a particular way. And my interest in looking at that in these different populations is, again, going back to the political aspect of the Tunisian slash Algeria project, is the ways in which those practices of living and those ways of thinking uh, 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 enable and may facilitate, and I would argue, in the examples I've given in Algeria and Tunisia and Sudan, and I haven't even talked in detail about what's happening in Sudan, which is very important, that, that, that those are, are facilitated and articulate a different way of doing politics. In other words, we're, we're seeing expressed with them a different understanding of sociality. I call this poetic sociality, where, where, where the, the socius is articulated in the expressions that go on in all their dynamic multiple ways. And, and that poetic sociality, that way of being in common, entails a different understanding of the structure of the state and the relationship between the state and the populations. And, and, and that's what I want to understand. Right? Uh, that's what I want to engage. That's what I want to bring to the fore. And, and then connect those different instances of it, whether it's Tunisia, or whether it's Haiti 20 years ago, or whether it's Black Lives Matter, to, to see what the resonances are, to see if it's possible then to begin a project of what Gramsci tried to do, of a sort of species-wide history. And untangling that history, as you mentioned, is is so interdisciplinary, it's so layered, there's things that are inextricable from one, one another. And I feel like, is there a way that you can pinpoint what has been the most challenging for you as for these, these two projects to, to kind of work through? Yeah, that's interesting because uh, it indeed uh, requires multiple disciplines, multiple attitudes, and it's a collaborative project. So, so the uh, project of new humanism that I'm involved in involves political theorists, policymakers, sociologists, philosophers, scholars of literature, public figures, including environmentalists. Uh, so it's, it, it's an omnibus project in that sense. The biggest challenge for me in that regard is time. Is it the time to, is it the time where you're going back and forth between locations? Is it the time as, as things are developing quickly in Minneapolis or in Sudan, as you mentioned, or and trying to tie those? Is, is What is your time looking like trying yeah, to figure yeah, this that, out? That, I mean time in that sense, yes. And yes. I also mean um, keeping up, keeping a pace of what's going on mm -hmm. in a certain way and uh, being cognizant of the limitations of a life. Right, so so time is the biggest challenge, and I would add, and I'm not being flippant, space. Right, because uh, you know, much if not most of this work can't really be done uh, in the library or on the internet. You have to, no. 
you have to actually go places right, and interact with people. And, you know, language is always a challenge in that regard. Um, I've, I've been blessed in certain ways in that respect. And so an even bigger challenge, and we addressed this in a recent issue of the Journal Boundary 2, uh, actually the online version, B2O, and that's the challenge of conveying all of this to a broader public in a way that's coherent. The particular uh, case there was uh, a, a brilliant uh, woman, uh, Anissa Daoud, who's an Algerian feminist and uh, a scholar of translation, uh, began a project uh, in which she wanted to deal with the sexual violence uh, committed against uh, women in, in Algeria, but then in the region, in moments of revolutionary turmoil. The, the, the particular instance was what we call the, the black decade of the 1990s in Algeria, the Civil War. But then it extended to what's been going on in Tunisia and even in places like Morocco. And her project was to bring together artists and women who had been victimized, where the victims would be in conversation with the artist. And this is done in conference context. And then the artists would write down their response to what the victims were saying. So it's not simply testimonia in, the, in that sense, but there's a dynamic exchange taking place in which the translation project is, is taking those experiences and giving them a particular literary expression, but she doesn't stop there. She then goes to the next stage to bring in sociologists and psychologists to also bring their voice into the mix. And she, she created a couple of conferences where she did this. So what we, the challenge is how do you present that to multiple audiences. And in this case, we have papers that were in, in French and then Arabic and a couple in English. And what we were able to do with the online version of the journal was to uh, produce the different interventions, some poems, some short stories, uh, theoretical pieces, literary presentations, academic pieces, in all three languages at once which you can do with, with hypertext, right? Mm -hmm. You can do this so that those who read Arabic would have access, those who read French would have access, those who read English would have access to all of the pieces. And so all the pieces, if it was in French, was translated into Arabic and English beside the French. If it was French, English, and Arabic, if it was Arabic, French, and English besides the original, uh, thereby producing a multiple audience, right? And a multiple reach so that we were performing, we were exhibiting what we were trying to talk about, right? And, and uh, again, uh, uh, the fact that it was online lent itself to that. There are concrete problems of cost in trying to do this on paper because it's very expensive uh, uh, to, to, to translate in that way. And then there become problems with people's printers having difficulty with the Arabic script. And we could do it a bit easier online and also because uh, it was an unfortunate or rather, I should say, a very fortunate situation. Uh, uh, Anissa was involved with the Higher Institute of Translation in Algeria, where, where I also have taught courses in theories of translation, sort of a side, side gate of mine. Uh, uh, and that meant access to people who could do the translation relatively inexpensively. So we did that, and that addressed this question of, of translation, the, 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 big, the biggest difficulty, right? How do you take these dynamic things and how do you present them in a way that preserves their particularity and, and shows that these are all different systems of signification coming together 
in a particular moment that preserves that and at the same time is able to convey to different audiences what's being said. Now, uh, um, I don't know how to achieve that solution in other contexts. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you, do you think that is a similar challenge of, of your forthcoming book? I mean, does, is that something that you consider? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, no, there's definitely. I, I've tried to do that in this book by, by very uh, casually and unapologetically moving across languages and, and violating uh, academic uh, uh, protocols. So, for instance, the protocol in English language publishing is if you're going to use a Greek term, for example, it may introduce the term in Greek script, the first instance, but after that it's all Romanized. But then I consistently throughout always present the term in Greek and then parenthetically in its Romanization with an English translation. Mm -hmm. And then I do the same thing with Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, I do the same thing uh, more sporadically with German, right? but I do do it. Uh, and then with French, and and then with Spanish, right? Uh, and then there are different registers of English that are at play. So, what I do is 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 I am foregrounding as I translate the untranslatability of certain concepts. With that juxtaposition, I'm showing here's the translation that's going on. So it's only one possibility of other possibilities because I'm laying out the concept at the same time. This makes for a big book. <laughs> I bet. And, and it makes for a copy editing challenge. Sure. In very many ways. But it, yes, it's, it's very much what's at stake in, in sentient flesh, w wanting to display what, what one's talking about. And that is to say that the book itself then is meant to be a performance of parasemiosis. Right. Like and in its looking at specific uh, expressions from among uh, African diaspora populations or populations that become constituted as black in a very specific way. And for me, that's an historical event. Uh, uh, it becomes then an instance of parasemiosis as poesis in black. Poesis meaning the act of bringing forth, right? That's the connection. Of human imagination, exactly, right? right? And in that sense, then blackness becomes one one instantiation of this, this general uh, uh, process of parasemiosis, or I would say event of parasemiosis. Great. Thank you. I want to touch on the lecture that you plan to deliver tonight. So for the 26th annual Mary Stevens Reckford Memorial Lecture in European Studies, um, we're so honored to have you here tonight to tentatively or proposed to speak on a topic tonight. And I just want to see if you can describe your lecture topic and um, perhaps if it ties back to your, your current research. Yes. Um, um, I'm, I'm honored to be given the opportunity to, uh, to speak in, the, in the, uh, the Record Lecture Series, the 26th in the series. The, the, of course, the title of my talk is on the question of beloved community, revisiting W.B. Du Bois' critique of the Teutonic Strawman. And that, that kind of says it all right there, right? It's, it's like the question, why revisit that critique now? And, and uh, the reason I want to revisit that critique now is that right now, one of the most pressing problems before us is the continued appeal of the authoritarian strongman. Now, there's a current argument that understands, and it's an argument that goes back to the, uh, the Walter Lippmann colloquium of 1937 that was organized in France. 
by uh, by uh, uh, yeah, it was Louis Rogier. Uh, and that ar that argument, that narrative, is uh, uh, Lippmann argued in, in, in his book, uh, uh, an inquiry into the principles of of the good society. Uh, and it was an argument that was contrary to the general consensus. He argued that uh, uh, fascism, in the generic sense, not just Italian fascism with an uppercase F, but uh, uh, there were all kinds of fascisms emerging in Middle Europe and elsewhere. And socialism uh, are both collectivisms. And, and they're collectivisms that are emerging, he argued, because of a crisis of, of Manchester or classical liberalism. Uh, a crisis, of course, that was evident in the Great Depression. And in other words, classical liberalism's investment in the individual and uh, uh, its, its proposition that through certain kinds of economic structures, individual rights could be universally achieved had reached a real crisis and there was doubt in it. And so what fascism offered was a kind of solution, and the solution was to replace the feeble individual of classical liberalism with the hero. And Peter Drucker was an interesting figure because he's the one who came up with uh, Toyotaism. Uh, two years later, in 39, uh, wrote a book on the, the, uh, the um, 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 end of economic man, a study in new totalitarianism, in which he put forward a similar argument Right, that that fascism was rising because people uh, were dissatisfied with the economic inequality that attended liberalism, and uh, so the investment in the age of economic homo economicus is how he puts it in Latin, uh, Latinizing it, which he traces from the Enlightenment on, uh, was being displaced by a new age, homo heroicus. Now, I I I want to challenge that that narrative in a very particular way. Uh, you know, I give lots of examples of, 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 of how that narrative is circulated, uh, the Brenton Wood Institution, uh, and importantly, the work of the uh, Mont uh, Pelerin group, uh, what, we, what, what is called in Europe the neoliberals. Uh, in this country, we slip into calling them neoliberals or libertarians. Uh, and that project was begun in 1947 by Friedrich Hayek, and both those projects were aimed at reviving classical liberalism in order to prevent collectivism. For the uh, Brenton Woods uh, uh, system, which gave us the IMF and the World Bank, it was very expressly stated in their founding documents that you know fascism occurred because of the crisis of liberalism, so we must shore up liberalism so this never happens again to prevent fascism in the future. Hence the worry that right now, as Obama put it in 2018, fascism is ascendant because since 2008 we've had a comparable crisis of liberalism. Mm. And that's why the strongman authoritarian is ascendant. I want to say no, that, that, that the uh, continuing appeal of the strongman is not a result of a crisis of classical liberalism, but the strongman is a fundamental element of liberalism itself. And, and we see this right away with Hobbes. But then I want to push it further back and say it, it, it goes to fundamental elements about how we understand civilization going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. So the strong man is a constitutive feature of our understanding of civilization. And that's when I turn to Du Bois, because Du Bois in his uh, 1890 Harvard commencement speech, Jefferson David, a representative of civilization, 
expressly challenges the strongman theory of civilization and offers instead what he calls the doctrine of the submissive man. And so in, in the talk, I, I, I explore precisely the terms of Du Bois's doctrine, the ways in which it, 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 it departs from Hegelian notions of civilization, the ways in which it challenges Gibbon's account of the fall of Rome, and the ways in which it plays with and challenges Nietzsche's conceptualization of the strongman. And in, in, in walking through Du Bois's doing that, I'm wanting to foreground the intellectual project Du Bois is engaged in and the way in which his project that gets too often understood in my view to parallel ways as simply a race project is a project of reimagining the human with regard to the newly freed people. So what's at stake here then is how we understand humanity in general. And I, in the talk, show how that's what's at stake for Du Bois and then try and dig deep into what he means by the doctrine of submission. And then, in fact, he ends up offering a, a certain notion of, of human sociality that is quite distinct from what has been the dominant notion, saying that we need to, to address issues of social justice, right? For him, 1890, it's the status of, of, of the newly freed blacks. We have to reimagine the human on different grounds. And his argument is that, that, that those people who've been enslaved, who are the purporters of this doctrine of submission, give us such grounds. There's something in the way in which they think and act that people dismiss as being subservient, but it's not. It has to do with the ways in which they're able to survive the violence of capitalist modernity and that there are lessons that are useful to all of us in that survival. That's great. That's yeah. the talk. So. That's the talk. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a timely talk because, uh, um, um, you know, it doesn't matter what what we call the the, the authoritarianism that's emerging ethno nationalism neo fascism fascism or white supremacy uh, 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 in each one of those expressions there's still this belief in the strongman there's still this belief that the catalyst for civilization is the hero who by always being ready for war will rescue us from decadent civilization, right? We talk about in terms of the anger of, 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 of the white supremacists and how it's justified by their being marginalized in the economy. But my point is no, it, it's not. That, that the, the roots of that attitude go down to when Aristotle wants to talk about what's the basis of being a good citizen. Well, it's the man of Arete. It is the warrior, mm. right? Who, because he's strong and a great warrior, is the right one to determine the structure of the ideal republic, right? And if you know your Aristotle, that of course means women can't do it. Exactly. Non-Greeks can't do it. Exactly. <laughs> Only Greek men can do it. And this is what the Romans called virtus or virtus, right? Again, the, the, the vir bonus, the good man, who's the warrior, right? And, and it, it's, so this, this celebration of of strong man valor as the way to rescue us, as the boy says in his his talk. You know, people people uh, 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 fear the strong man, rightly, but they also really don't. They celebrate it at the same time, mm. and they deplore the slave who's really not that deplorable. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the talk, I'm trying to say, well, wait a minute. There's something to that. Let's let's explore that. Yeah. Let's let's and as we look at our moment, let's stop a minute and say. Okay, what's this investment? 
and it, it, it runs throughout our society and our popular culture and our, our celebration of the vigilante hero, whether it's the hard-boiled detective or, or the uh, Spider-Man dressed up in a certain kind of way. There's still, again, this, this investment in the strong individual. So I just want to thank you for coming in today. The weather is not ideal, of course, but we so appreciate you at least coming in and doing this podcast interview and being with us in Hyde Hall today. It's my pleasure, and if I may, by taking this moment to to thank IAH for inviting me to give the 26th uh, Rekford Lecture. Uh, I, I want to thank his director, uh, Andy Perrin, uh, uh, for extending the invitation to me personally. And I also want to thank uh, uh, the staff, uh, specifically Rebecca, uh, Sophia, thank you. Uh, 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 and uh, Ebony for all of your efforts in, in handling the logistics. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all the episodes of our podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.